Really do appreciate it. Thank you. All good, man. Happy to do it. Yes, sir, man. And uh, also, my bad about the the Houston Dallas thing, man. I I, w- I was talking to one of my cousins. Yeah, I was talking to one of my cousins who's in Dallas, and he was like, "You know, Houston's nowhere near Dallas." And I didn't know. I was like, "Damn." <laughs> yeah, man. It's like Houston to Dallas is it's not as far, but like almost from like Oakland to L.A. Yeah. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yes, yeah, sir. Uh, yeah, it's it's nowhere near. It's about a it's about maybe about a 50 minute flight, and it's about three and a half, four hours driving, pretty much. Yeah. All right, for sure, man. But yeah, man. Uh, just like uh, I sent you the questions over, just the subjects we're gonna go over. Just so you know, I'm not asking no off the ball stuff or nothing like that. Yeah. All right, I appreciate it, man. And then uh, let me hit record on my thing real quick. All right. So. All right, yo, 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 man, what's good, Raider Nation? What's good, YouTube? It's your boy Byron from Byron Live 95 here with a special guest, a very, very special guest that I have been bugging his DMs for the past, I don't know, five, six years, man. I I apologize, man, but yeah, just really wanted to get this interview, man. So, ladies and gentlemen, Stanford Ralph. What's going on, man? Happy to do it, man. uh, happy to be on. Like I said, man, anything about the Raiders, you know, I'm all in. So, man, much love. Appreciate you. Love everything you're doing. All right. I appreciate it, man. Uh, just to start off, man, how's your 2020 going so far? Uh, man, it's uh, it's been it's been it's been going. I'll put it like that. <laughs> uh, definitely uh, will be glad to see 2021 get here. Uh, you know, I think uh, with the pandemic, obviously, everybody's been affected by that uh, in some capacity. Um, and then, you know, uh, the other pandemic that we're going through is uh, as minorities within this country, within the racial inequality. So 2020 has definitely been uh, from all aspects and from all angles, definitely a year that a lot of us will remember for a long, long time. And I think that our grandkids will be studying the year of 2020 in a Most myriad definitely. of ways in textbooks uh, for years to come, man. Most definitely, man. And yes, sir, I got a I got a question about that at the very, very end about, yeah. you know, everything you're doing. And uh, I like what you're doing on there is spreading awareness and justice, racial inequality. I fuck with that heavy. Appreciate you doing that. Many of the, you know, athletes out there that's not doing it, but you are. So I, I give big props to you already, man. Ooh, appreciate you. Uh, yes, sir, man. Let's uh, start all the way at the beginning. Uh, your childhood all the way in uh, Texas. I believe you were, grew up in the Austin area. Yeah, yeah, ATX. Yes, sir, man. Uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood and uh, tell me when you just uh, decided to get into football around that time. Man, I want to say I started playing football. Uh, I want to say I was nine. I was in fourth grade. No, I was I was 10. I was in fifth grade when I first started playing like Pop Warner, Little League, things like that. And uh Originally, like I said, it was just, you know, me and baseball uh, pretty much for uh, my early, early years. I started playing football about age 10, fifth grade, uh, then went to sixth grade in middle school, then seventh grade and so forth. And I want to say that starting off, the thing that probably I loved the most it was first of all Jerry Rice because the 49ers were my favorite team growing up. I can say that out loud now. It's all good. It's all good. But, uh, my, but when I was in sixth grade, when I was in sixth grade and Deion Sanders went to the 49ers and uh, he missed those first two games and played the last 14 defense player of the year. They won a Super Bowl that year. Mm-hmm. And 
watching him play, but also the jerseys of the 49ers when it was the 94 season, the throwback, 75-year uh, throwback with the red – they had the red jerseys with the white letters. I'm and sorry, the, the black white drop numbers. shadow. Yeah. Exactly, the black drop shadow. That, to me, right there – I fell in love with the 49ers. I fell in love with the cornerback position right there at that moment. And it was the interception that he had against Atlanta at the Georgia Dome when right. he ran down the sideline looking at his former teammates. From that moment on, I was I, I was sold on the game of football from that moment on. The show, man. And then uh, you go into high school, two-star athlete, track. I already know you fast. You're blazing fast, man, out there on the track <laughs> So how was it balancing both football and track in high school? Man, it, re it really wasn't that hard at all uh, because in football, I'm sorry, in, in high school, you can do that. Now, college, depending on your coach, it gets a little bit more hectic. But in high school, you know, you're playing football September through what, November, December, depending on when the state championship game is and all that. And then after then, you know, you're free. Uh, you may have some like off-season workouts during an athletic period or whatever, but track practice would be after school. So it really wasn't hard at all. But um, I only started running track in seventh grade just to get faster for football. I just realized that it was something that I was good at and it was fun, so I stuck with it. But otherwise, um, that was – otherwise, I never would have started running track had it not been just to get better on the football field. So. Very interesting, man. Very interesting. And then uh, you end up going to the University of Houston now. Were there other yeah. colleges that you were trying to go to, or was it day one you knew you were going to Houston? Man, because I'm now older, I can tell you this story. All right. And when I was in high school, <clears throat> um, when I was in high school, I always wanted AM or Oklahoma. Those are the two schools I wanted to go to. I made that very, very well known. Um, AM was heavily recruiting me. Oklahoma came to watch me practice a couple times. And I remember back in high school, I remember I was a, I was a junior. I was a junior. And there was a chick that I always liked. There was a chick <laughs> I always liked. And she wound up dating somebody else. And I remember right. that really put me in my feelings. It did. And so I used to always tease her about it. And so then I remember we had a class called Webmastering back in high school, I was a senior. And we had to, we had to present a, a website to the class. And she presented her website to the class and in big bold letters, it said, Hater of the Year Award, Stanford Route. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that like, you know, here I am senior, I'm a star on the football field, track, all of that. So I'm big man on campus. So, right. you know, I can't, I can't take that. And so, uh, and, and this is where I learned several valuable lessons because she was the type that she'll get up in your face. Like she's the type that she'll One challenge of, and, you. At once. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, so here she is challenging me and I'm okay. I got this moment. Like, okay, I'm in class. What do I do? I can't back down, but I can't put my hands on her. Yeah. So what do I do? So I just kind of like mushed her face like that. Big mistake. Because then I got sent to the principal's office. Now, luckily, my principal, who was a woman at the time, she was like, you know what, Stan? I like you. I'm going to help you out. Because if colleges find out about this, it's going to yeah. really mess you up. So she did a good job of, of, of sweeping it under the rug for me. 
my defensive coordinator, who I already didn't have the best relationship with, he now finds out that something happened uh, in school today, but nobody's telling him. So he's already kind of upset with me. This week, we have Stony Point, our, uh, our, one of our rivals, uh, homecoming week. My Texas A&M scout is coming to watch me play. Then they're going to offer me everything, this, any other. Well, Stony Point was a passing team. And I believe it was Tuesday in practice. I think I messed up on a coverage, something like that. Coach is riding me hard. I'm like, Coach, quit tripping. I just messed up, whatever. He's like, Ralph, go stand on the sideline. So Wednesday comes. I think I mess up on a coverage again. He's riding me. Coach, quit tripping. I'm going to get it. Come game time. He's like, Ralph, go stand on the sideline. Thursday comes, and then that's when they uh, my D coordinator and the head coach, who were real tight at the time, that's when they tell me, Route, you're not playing tomorrow. Yeah. I'm like, bro, like, whatever, dude. Like, I know y'all bullshitting me. Yeah. So then game time comes. Like, no, for real, for real. Like, I did not play. But you know what? I take that back. I'm lying. I did play in the game. <laughs> they, they let me play on, they let me play on special teams. Ah, okay. So I sat the bench the whole game on defense, the whole game, played a little special teams. And from that point on, uh the Oklahoma's the AMs, the Arkansas, all of the big schools, they just seem to just fall off the table and everything just yeah. kind of dissipates. Yeah, so uh, that's why I wound up going to University of Houston because they were pretty much kind of like the last man standing. But uh, but I learned a valuable lesson at that moment. A, don't ever put your hands on women. B, listen to your coach. Be coachable. Uh, those were those were two very valuable lessons that I learned back then because. It all worked out for the best. I wound up getting to my intended destination, but it was definitely um, not the way or the route, all pun intended, that I wanted to, uh, that I wanted to take to get there. So yeah, um, that uh, that definitely um, was something that I remember. Damn, I did not know that. I thought it was just you were Houston, you were down there. You were like, all right, I'm just uh, no doubt. I didn't. Hey, thank you for bringing that information to my side, man. That's yeah, uh, that's, that's nah, crazy, man. man. I, uh, it was always and them or Oklahoma for me. That, that's what it always was. This show, man. So now you end up going to the University of Houston. So now, uh, touching back on the question we just asked uh, when I was talking about juggling uh, track and football, and you said it was much easier in high school. How was it now doing that in college, now playing track and playing football? It was, uh, it was difficult when I first got to U of H because my rookie year at U of H, we went 0-11. Yeah, 0 and 11, uh, 2001 season. So for me, coming from high school where we were good in football and uh, I was second fastest in the state uh, uh, in the 4A division, it was different. It was difficult because I didn't have any any success on the football field as a team. Had some success, started as a true freshman, things like that. But uh, that's when I decided, okay, you know what, I'll go out and start running track a little bit because initially coming into school, I didn't really plan on, on running track at all. I didn't. Uh, but it's funny how life works out. So as I'm trying to run track my freshman year, our head coach at the time, he wasn't really keen on his ball players running track. So it was kind of difficult because I had to do the football offseason workouts and then go and do my track workouts, which was very, very daunting and taxing on me. So I wasn't really able to be at full strength or full speed, so to speak, uh, in track my, my freshman year. Now, my sophomore year comes, that's when we changed head coaches. 
And that's when our Bryles comes in and he had come from Texas tech where in the big 12, their ball players run track, just like yeah. much of them doing the sec. So things, things were easier because then he just sat me down. He's like, look, route. He said, I get it. You're talented on track on the track. I don't mind you running track in the spring. Uh, whenever the whenever the football team is working out or whenever they're in the weight room, you don't have to do their full workout, but just be in the weight room with the guys. And you can do whatever workout you feel will help you on the track. But I still want you to be there with the guys. That way they see you. And it's not some, oh, you know, this guy, he doesn't even show up to football workouts and things like that. So uh, so after Coach Browse got there, it was very easy. And so uh, and I think the rest is history because that running track in the spring helped me on the football field, helped me become a better sprinter. And I think it helped me more mentally because whenever we were going against passing teams within our conference, I got tired a lot less than the other guys on the team and even other receivers that I went against. So it definitely uh, it definitely worked out for both sides. For sure, man. A blessing in the skies, uh, nonetheless, right there. So yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's dope that that wasn't what you intended to do, but then you did, and then it actually helped you out on the football field. So like I said, that's that's yeah. that's dope as fuck, man. That really is. So uh now I'm gonna go to my most favorite subjects that I want to talk about, man. Uh you get an invite to the NFL combine in 2005, and you have one of the most legendary 40-yard dashes, four, what was it, a 4.27 when you came in there? Yeah, four two seven. Four two seven. When you got there, were, was your target just to I'm I'm trying to be the fastest out here. I'm trying to get the record, or how how did it come about when you were running the forty? Uh, the forty is probably the one of, one of the things at the combine that I was the least worried about, just because for me running track in the sixty and the two hundred and things like that, I already knew the forty was going to take care of itself. As long as I did not slip and fall, you know, out of my start, I knew that the forty was going to take care of itself. Um, so I was not worried about that at all. Uh, I remember training, uh, I was still actually training indoor track at the time a little bit because I knew that, you know, I knew the 40 was coming, but I also was still running indoor track. And I think that maybe a week before, before uh, I had to leave to go to Indy, I think on the track, I ran, I think a 417 with, you know, my track coach hand timing me. So yeah. I knew the 40 was going to take care of itself. I knew that. For me, the main thing was the 5-10-5. It was the L drill. It was making sure that I was getting in and out of my breaks very smooth and all the DB workouts and things like that. But uh, the 40, that was actually something that was the least of my uh, of my worries. But I knew, I knew that I was going to run fast. I knew that. Uh, at the time, I didn't even know what the record was because I really wasn't worried about it. Gotcha. Um, I just knew that if I ran – to what to my full potential, what I know I'm capable of, I knew that there would not be anybody there that would be able to uh to run faster than me in, in any position. That's so, man. And also, man, do you have that personal video of you running the 40, man? Because I've looked everywhere online and I've I want to see that. There's a lot of Raider players that I don't get, but yeah, yeah. do you have it? I oh man, I I don't think I do. Um and I, uh, I'm trying to think here. I remember being at the uh, one of the NFL boot camps for the uh, broadcasting boot camp back in 2017 up there at Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And they were supposed to send it to me. They just wound up not doing it. But yeah, I've uh, I've actually never seen it Damn. myself. But uh, but like I said, I've had a few people kind of tell me that we're part of the league office back then or whatever. But no, I've I've actually never seen it, my man. Damn. 
Yeah, yeah man, I know. I, 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 I want to see it, man. I would just love to see all the Raider players just running <laughs> at 40, man. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's crazy though, man. And uh after the after the combine draft day is coming up, did you get any, you know, did any teams let you know that hey, if you're at this certain spot, we might take you or or how'd that go? I knew that uh uh actually my DB coach at U of H, my last year there, he's now special teams uh, coach with uh with the Giants. He was with the Broncos at the time. And I remember he told me after I got drafted and everything is like, yeah, Stan, like, you know, we would have taken the second round. I knew that the Titans, uh, if I would have been still there when they were picking in the second round, they probably would have taken me. So I knew that I was not going to last past the second round. It was just a matter of what I'd be late first or in the second round. But I knew that I was going to be in the top 64 picks. It was just a matter of, of how high or how low within that 64. Right, right. And then uh, did Oakland tell you, like, hey, if you're right here, or, or what was it like with, you know, Oakland uh, talking to you? I actually never heard anything from Oakland at all. And so I remember Calvin Branch came down to my, uh, to, uh, to my pro day at U of H back in March of 2005, and he worked me out a little bit. I think Clayton Lopez, the DB coach at the time, I think he may have been there as well. Uh, memory, you know, kind of memory doesn't quite serve yeah. me as, as much. It was so far back. But, uh, but no, I didn't hear anything from them, anything extra, anything like that. Uh, and I remember after I got drafted, Calvin, he told me, he's like, Ralph, I could have told you at your pro day when I was there that we were taking you, but okay. you know, he didn't, but, uh, but no, I never heard anything from Oakland, any sort of extra attention, any sort of, you know, anything like that. Didn't hear any, didn't hear a peep. So, uh, and, and, and as I come to find out later on, even my boy Fabian Washington, he was taken in the first round ahead of me that year to the Oakland Raiders. He didn't hear anything from Oakland either. So I guess it uh it's it's a very common thing to get drafted by a team that you don't hear much from. And I think a lot of that has to do with because they're already sure and they're sold on you. So gotcha. what else I got to talk to you about? I already know that I like you. I already know that if you're there, I'm going to pick you. So gotcha. we really don't need, need to have, you know, extra dialogue versus teams that still want to gather and garner more information from you. For sure, man, for sure. And then draft day comes, you get the call that you're going to Oakland. Do you remember where you were at, what you were doing at that time that you got that phone call? Oh, I can tell you exactly where I was at. Um, <laughs> in Austin, Texas, my hometown, uh, I drove back uh, that day during draft day because back then, you know, the draft was on Saturday, Sunday, not Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I knew that I wasn't going top 15, top 20. I knew that. So yeah. – I want to say that I, I I went and started driving home maybe about 11 o'clock that morning, something like that. Got home about 1 o'clock, something like that. You know, the draft always starts at noon, central time. At least it used to back then. And so I get home. I think it's maybe pick 20, 21, something like I just saw Fabian and just going off the board. Uh, Aaron Rodgers just went off the board. My boy Jason Campbell out of Auburn going off the board to the Redskins. So now it's picked 25, 26. And now I'm like, okay, you know what? Let me start paying attention. And so then, you know, just for my own vanity purposes, I wanted to go in the first round like everybody else does. So the first round now ends. Okay, I didn't go first round. I'm already kind of freaking out. I'm getting a little yeah. antsy, getting a little anxiety. Okay, 
I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go to the Highland Mall. It's a mall in Austin, Texas. It's, it's since been, you know, shut down. And I went to my favorite pizza place, Cazzoli's Pizza, uh, and I'm standing in line. And then that's when I get a phone call. And it's a private number. And everybody I know, their number saved in my phone. So right. I'm already know, okay, this might be something. So I answer the phone and I think it's, I forget, it's either Nora Turner or Al, I forget. Uh, but first, I think it's a woman, she's like Stanford route. She's like, yes, uh, I have Al Davis on the phone for you. And then I'm like, okay, patching through. And, uh, <laughs> and then he's like, he's like, man, he's like, would you like to be an Oka Raider? I'm like, F yeah, I would like to be an Oka Raider. So uh, yeah, I still remember that to this day, I was standing in line getting a $2 slice of pizza from uh from Cazzoli's Pizza at Highland Mall, uh, Austin, Texas, April I think twenty seventh, two thousand five. Man, wow, man, that's crazy. You got you standing in line just trying to get something to eat, and then yeah. your life changes on the phone just like that. <laughs> it, yeah, it's crazy. like that, man. Yeah, things things have never been the same since. I'd imagine. <laughs> I'd imagine. So now, man, you go in, you go into training camp. It's your first time being in the NFL, man. Tell me the differences you saw immediately from playing and uh, just playing and practicing in the college setting. Now going to the NFL, how was that a drastic uh, change for you? I would probably say the uh, it was probably just the simple fact that everybody on the field, from left tackle to right defensive end to corner to linebacker to fullback to long snapper to kicker, everybody was the best at their school or their college they went to. Everybody was the best. And coming in, we got Randy Moss. I got Charles Woodson. I got Warren Sapp. So I'm looking at three goats just walking around the facility. That was the shock right there, number one. Uh, number two, I'd probably say the speed of the game, how everything just happens so fast, where you could have a guy who maybe on paper runs a 4-6-40. Okay, not that fast. But the speed that he'll get in and out of his breaks, things like that, it was that that probably was the biggest uh the biggest I'd probably say surprise uh when I when I first had that first mini camp in Oakland way back then that I probably say the speed of the game. Oh man, I I, I couldn't imagine this. Did it did it give you that, those butterflies in your stomach? Like it, I know it, it was probably one of the most nervous oh, times for you. No question, no question. But the thing is that uh I had. I've been preparing mentally because, you know, one of my homeboys, he told me, he's like, Ralph, you're going to get drafted on a, on a freaking Saturday or Sunday, whatever. And then a week later, you're going to be in minicamp lined up against some veteran receiver that's probably been to several Pro Bowls. So get your mind right. So uh, it, it definitely was a challenge that I that I wanted to embrace, that I tried to embrace uh, from the very beginning because I knew – okay, I'm coming in second round pick. Obviously they drafted me for a reason not to just come in and uh, and be some project guy, ride the pine or whatever. So I definitely uh, wanted to make sure that I came in and showed that, okay, you know what? I belong on this stage. That's so, man. And uh, do you have a moment during your rookie year, your uh, a rookie moment where you're like, damn, this is like the end of like, whether it was getting beat or you got hit a certain way, or do you remember where you're like, oh shit, like this is the, this is the real fucking deal right here. Uh, I would probably have to go with the first game of the season, opening up against New England Patriots at Gillette Stadium. It was Thursday night football, I believe, or Monday night. I forget. Uh, but they had the opening game because they just won the Super Bowl prior to. And Deion Branch won the MVP award in the Super Bowl 
the uh, the year prior against the Philadelphia Eagles out there at Altel Stadium, Jacksonville, Florida. And I had never played nickelback a day in my life. And I played pretty good at corner throughout OTAs. I think I had maybe five picks uh, throughout OTAs, things like that. So, okay, we want to get this kid right on the field. Not going to start over Asamoah, not going to start over Charles Woodson. So we'll just put him in the slot. They tell me that the first day at training camp, I have no idea what's going on. I don't understand the position. And so we get to the first game of the season against the New England Patriots. I'm going against Deion Branch, best slot receiver in the game, won the, in a, won the Super Bowl MVP <laughs> yeah. award as a, as a slot receiver. And I want to say, man, like he had about eight or nine catches for like 90 yards. Thank God he didn't go for a bill against me in the first game. <laughs> but uh, that was, man, that, that was a tough game because he spun me around like a spinning top over and over and over again. I'd probably say that was like my hello rookie, welcome to the NFL moment right there. Uh, and I learned very quickly how uh, how this game is played. And Deion Branch went to Louisville, which was a part of Conference USA in my conference back when I was in college. But he was a he was a senior when I was a sophomore, so I didn't play against him much. But uh, but not, I definitely remember that still to this day. Uh, that was a that was a hello rookie welcome to the NFL moment, and I think it made me better down the line because seeing that speed of the game, Deion Branch is what. Five nine, maybe a four five, four four forty, maybe. But the the intricacy that he's getting in and out of his breaks, the speed, the quickness, things like that. Not fast on paper, but yeah. man, in and out of those breaks, extremely quicker than a hiccup. So I learned that football is not about height, weight, speed, things like that. It's about can you play this game and how fast can you run on the field in your pads, not just lining up for a forty at the combine. For sure, man. For sure. Also, man, you've played in the Coliseum a lot. I've always wanted to ask a Raider player this. How was it, honest opinion, how was it playing on that dirt infield? How was it just running, tackling, getting in and out of breaks on, on that shit? I can tell you like this, man, that Warren Sapp said it best. He said that dirt ain't lost a fight yet because you hit that dirt, believe me, you will feel everything that it brings. Um I think that uh, it was it was something that was frustrating early on because usually the A season ends around late September or something like that. So yeah. the first two or three games of the year, we actually hope that we got away games majority <laughs> first games of the year so we don't have to play on the dirt. But yeah. nonetheless, uh, it actually made you a better player because it taught you how to keep your feet underneath you. And it taught you how to have better footwork so you don't slip on the dirt because you slip on that dirt – playing man coverage against some receiver, it's six points. Yeah. Um, so it definitely was something that made you a better player. But, yeah, but nonetheless, like, nobody liked playing on it. You just understood that, okay, it is what it is, that as long as the A's are playing baseball right now, there's going to be awesome. dirt right there, and you just find you just found a way to deal with it. For sure, man. Also, man, your first two years, you didn't start too much. You know, they had you on the sidelines, nickel, all mm -hmm. that. How did it feel 2007, I want to say, is the correct year that you started getting a lot more uh, – you started a lot more games. Yeah. How was it just from coming off the bench, just watching the game like that, barely getting into now it's your time, you're the actually starting corner? Wow, uh, I loved it. Uh, I think it was right after we played the Denver Broncos, uh, the 
second game of the season, we had lost to them. Jay Cutler was the quarterback. Uh, I think we are 0-2, I think, to start off the year back in 07. And then Robbo comes up to me, I think, that Wednesday morning, which was right before uh, install, which is the first day of the work week in the NFL. And Robbo's like, hey, Route, uh, you're starting this week. And at first I'm like, kind of, you know, took me off guard a little bit. But I'm like, okay, cool. Like, this is what I've been waiting for. So it definitely was a, a, a challenge that I wanted to embrace, no question. And I think that uh, – Having a few spurt moments where I started against San Francisco 06, got my first career pick against Alex Smith in the first quarter, uh, starting against the Denver Broncos the week after that, and then starting the last game of the season, I think in 06, uh, and things like that actually gave me like a little bit of like a glimpse into uh, the workload, things like that. But once I became a starter, oh man, I love that because I mean, that's what I wanted all along. Yes, sir, man. Give you a chance to get on the field. And you had three interceptions, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. You had three interceptions oh, that seven. year. Oh, yes, yes sir. Oh, seven. So how was it for you, man, actually just getting some interceptions, just being out there, being like, yo, I can actually actually do this. This is the moment I've been waiting for. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, the, you know, one of the best feelings in the world. Uh, I think we started off that year in 07 against the Detroit Lions. Yeah, Calvin Johnson's first game. And I got an interception off of John Kidna. I think he was throwing to Roy Williams. And I think I just gone in because I think Fabian had, was, had uh, maybe had an ankle twist or something like that. So I was in there for about like five plays. I, I, got my I got my first interception of that season. And then I'm starting – we played Miami Dolphins. I think that was the fourth game of the year, right before the bye week. I had an INT again in that game. Trent Green was the quarterback. I think it was thrown to Chris Chambers. And then we had another, and then our and then three, four weeks later, we played the Kansas City Chiefs in Oakland against one of my boys, Dwayne Boat. Uh, yes, they tried me on a nine route. I picked him off. Um, so, yeah, so I started off the year pretty good getting uh, getting three INTs. Uh, so it definitely does a lot for your confidence, and you kind of calm down a little bit because now you don't have the anxiety. And you already know uh, playing football or just simply having success early, now it's no longer I think I can do this. Now it's I know I can. All right, man. Good show, man. And then you go into 2008, 2009, they take you out of that starting lineup. Yeah. How did it feel, you know, for your confidence for it to be like, dang, I'm actually out here playing and stuff. And then the next two years are like, they push you off to the side. Like, nah, it's. Yeah. That, I tell you, 08 and 09 were some very trying years for me. Um, I remember back in 07, uh, Lane Kiffin was our head coach. And Lane is a decent guy. A lot of guys on the team really didn't care too much for him, to be honest with you, um, because of how he was in within the locker room or within the facility, not his coaching, just things like that, how he was as a person. And so I still remember uh, going uh, March 2008, they traded for D'Angelo Hall, which I get it. D. Hall was one of the best cornerbacks in the right. league at the time. Went to the Pro Bowl twice in Atlanta, things like that. So I get it. I understood it. But I was like, okay, you know what? Like, I'm not going to be in a to be in a backup. Like, I was so I wanted to be traded, but Al just wouldn't do it. And so they had franchised Namdi that 08 season. Namdi winds up playing flawless, goes to the Pro Bowls to start or things like that. And I remember I was so disgruntled in that 2008 season. Um, Lane Kiffin wound up getting fired, I think, after the fourth game of the year, something like that. Um, and then that's when Tom Cable became the head coach. And I was such a disgruntled employee. 
as far as my body language throughout the facility, even when I was on the field, special teams, it was so down. It was so downtrodden that it would actually probably bring down everybody else just from looking at me. And right. so I remember after they released D Hall, because as good as D Hall was, he just wasn't a fit for our man to man skin. Yeah. He just wasn't the right fit. And so after they release him on a Tuesday night, I'm thinking, okay, I'm probably going to get my spot back. Wednesday morning, Tom Cable's like, no, Route, you're not starting. Chris Johnson is. And so much of that was my negative attitude that I had for so long that he had seen from when he was just an old line coach. Now he's the head coach. It's like, no, like, Route, your approach to the game sucks. And you need to do better at that. And for a, for a long time, I actually fought him on it. Like, no, I'm not going to sit up here and be a great employee when I'm not starting, and I know I should be. So uh, so that was something that was very tumultuous throughout the 08 season, and then 09 season comes along, and I'm still not starting, disgruntled, things like that. And then I want to say it made me a better player, and it made me a better person because I finally understood what Tom Cable was trying to teach me. Because right. for the longest time, I didn't like it. But once I finally got my head out of my ass and I started realizing, okay, you know what? It's not that he has a problem with me. He has a problem with my approach to the game because Tom Cable wants everybody bought in, everybody all in. I wasn't all in. And that's something that I had to go ahead and be honest with myself about. And so 2010 comes along. That's when it's now an uncapped year because the new CBA has not been signed. It has not been agreed to. So it makes 2010 an uncapped year. Well, in my, in my specific instance, uh, when I first got drafted, I signed a five-year contract. Well, so 2010, I was supposed to be a free agent. But because it was an uncapped year, you now have to have six years of NFL experience to be an unrestricted free agent. So I'm now thus a restricted free agent where I'll put, where uh, the owners put a tender on a certain player, third round tender, second round, first round, or original round, or first and third round. Well, Al gave me a first and third round tender, which is the highest that you can have. And so I knew then I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe he's trying to give me my chance to actually really get on the field again. And so that's when in training camp, it was pretty much kind of like an open competition. And, uh, and I won the job in training camp. And then that's when I was, full, you know, full-time starter again. But at that time, I then liked Tom Cable throughout all of the 2010 season because I finally understood yeah. what he was trying to get out of me. And so after the 2010 season, he doesn't return. Hugh Jackson is now the head coach. And I remember doing my exit meeting with Tom Cable uh, after the 2010 season when I probably had my best statistical year, probably yeah. as far as like completion percentage against. Um, I told Tom, I was like, man, I was like, you know, Tom, I know that there's a whole lot of things about whether you're going to come back or not or whatever, man. I just want to let you know, man, that like, I hope that you're back. So, you know, you got my vote of confidence. Uh, but obviously, you know, things didn't work out like that. But that was definitely a learning experience uh, when Tom Cable did not give me my starting spot back because I learned that, okay, yeah, you can play. Yeah, you're a pretty good player. But I don't like your approach to the game. So it definitely taught me a lot about being an employee and being yeah. a professional, not just, oh, well, you know what? I can cover good, so I should be out there. So definitely uh, definitely a learning experience, man. The show, man. And yeah, that's right where I was getting to, man. In uh, 2010, a complete 180. You have a breakout year. Yeah. I think 42% of uh, uh, 
passes completed, uh, wide receivers going to your side. Uh, your guys' secondary was the second best in the NFL. It was between it was with you, Namdi, Michael Huff, Tyvon Branch. You end up getting two picks. One, uh, uh, you got a pick six. I think that you uh, shared recently. Yeah, uh, yeah, in yeah. Kansas City, uh, mm -hmm. thirteen pass deflections. How did it feel now that you were actually getting into your groove? You know, with this, was it some different? Uh, I was going to ask that question, but I, I think you you gave me the answer. With Tom Cable, gave you a little uh, uh, fire in you. I think that uh, I think that really, for the most part, was I actually was able to now bring to the table what I had learned in 2008. I just wasn't starting, so I couldn't bring it to the table. I want to say in the off season of 2008 is when I started to find my sweet spot as far as press man coverage, as yeah. far as my timing, uh, getting my hand placement right, uh, the uh, feather technique versus being steady at the line of scrimmage like Nambi. You know, I learned a lot from Nambi Asamoah of how he was patient at the line of scrimmage. When a receiver comes off and gives you that first move, Nambi was always patient because what happens is he now closes that gap down because he doesn't back up. A lot of corners, whenever the receiver makes his first move, a, first, a corner's first uh, instinct is to go ahead and kind of give a little space. Well, you just created separation between you and the uh, you and the receiver. Namdi would sit hard right there. So the receiver actually came closer to Namdi. He's able to get his hands on you, ride you, get on the correct shoulder, things like that. So I started really getting my sweet spot in, the, in 2008 offseason OTAs, minicamp, things like that, because Namdi was gone. He hadn't reported yet because he was franchised. So I was starting in his place. But when I wasn't on the field as a starting corner, things like that, just mainly playing in the nickel, right. I wasn't able to bring what I felt like I had developed to the field. And then 09, I'm still not starting, things like that. But in 2010, that's when I started really getting into my groove as far as my timing uh, at the line of scrimmage and then studying film. Because I remember so many times Namdi studied film really, really well. And there were times where I would be playing nickelback in 08 or 09. We would come off the field. I would go and I would, I would tell him, hey, man, that was a great play over there. And he'd almost kind of like shut me up because he's taking a beeline to the sideline, about to go right down on the notepad. He's like, okay, he's like, okay, he's like dragon equals uh, double slants because he heard the quarterback make a check. And then they gave slant. So he's he's like, hey, route, shut up, because I got to go ahead and write this down because, okay, I, I'm picking up on something. Whenever whenever quarterback calls dragon, we got double slants coming. So just uh, picking up a, a few things from him on that uh, on that aspect. And then, you know, me actually being able to bring it to the field, being able right. to be on the field, I think is probably what really helped me catch my stride in that 2010 season. Yes, sir, man. Uh, I remember. Uh, I remember in 2010, I was like, "This cannot be the same Stanford route." No disrespect, right there. When I was watching that, I was like, "This ain't the same dude I saw back a couple of years ago." That's when I yeah. was like, "All right, yeah, he's, he's starting to get in the stride." And yeah. like I said, mm -hmm. hard work pays off. Uh, you had uh, Tom Cable, like I said, you didn't like, and then you know you knew after a while, like, hey, he just doesn't like my approach to the game, and ends up having a, a, a best uh, statistical year for you in 2010. So now mm -hmm. 2011 comes around, man. And this was the NFL lockout year, right? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
and I remember there weren't a lot of reports on the free agencies. And I do know that Namdi was a free agent. Mm-hmm. Did you think he was, like I said, you've, you've been with him ever since you were a rookie all the way till now. Did you think he was coming back or was he still not telling anybody or how, how was that situation? Oh, no, we knew he wasn't coming back. Oh, uh, he wasn't coming back? Oh, no. And, and not because I don't, I don't, I, not because he didn't like Oakland, not because of that. I think that Namdi was at a place where, number one, Al wasn't going to be able to afford him, uh, yeah. uh, myself, and Michael Huff. He wasn't. And with Namdi, and obviously, you know, I don't want to count the next man's money, but since, you know, we're talking about it, I'll go ahead and uh, just tell you about it. With Namdi's contract, because he was so good, the third year of his contract had some sort of like escalator in it where uh, the third year he now has to be paid either, I think, 17 million or like the average of the top five quarterbacks in the league at the time. Right. So uh, something about if he didn't get an INT, that voided the third year. So that's what made him a free agent. Now, in the 2010 season, nobody threw at him barely get any INTs. Him yeah. and Revis were the starting corners in 2010 Pro Bowl because that's how great they were. And both of them had no INTs the whole year. So that's what made him a free agent. And Al simply was not going to pay a corner $17 million a year in 2011. So we already kind of knew Namdi was not coming back simply because Al wasn't going to be able to afford all three of us. Right. So Al just chose to bring back Huff and myself because he knew he couldn't afford Namdi. Not because he didn't want him. He just couldn't afford him. Uh, And Namdi knew, hey, I'm not giving you a hometown discount. No, you can't afford me. I get it. No hard feelings. So I'm going to go somewhere else. And also at the time, he was looking to go somewhere uh, where he could could win. Uh, But obviously that didn't happen in Philadelphia. But no, I mean, we we pretty much knew that, that Namdi was a goner. Not because nobody wanted him, but just for the economics and the dollars and cents of how everything was transpiring throughout the secondary. Yeah, the business part of the game. Okay, I understand that. And how did it feel now in 2011? Did they let you know right away that you were about to be the starting corner or were you going to have to battle that with Chris Johnson? Or how did, how did that work after Namdi left going into camp? Oh, well, in 2011, I had just got my my my, uh, my free agent deal as far as re-signing with the Raiders, so I already knew I was starting. It was oh, just okay. a matter of who was going to be starting uh, alongside me. Um, and uh, starting off, it was Chris Johnson. Then CJ got hurt. And then uh, I think he had a growing injury or something like that. And then that's when Lito Shepard, that's when he started uh, starting a little bit. So things like that. But, yeah, 2011, uh, I, and, and, you know, so crazy, after Al passed, that's when 2011 became very, very up and down from yeah. e- from every aspect, from the uh, from who was trying to have control within the organization to the play calling to defensive play calling to personnel changes, things like that. Uh, after Al passed, that's when a lot of things went off the rails and it started to really, really affect the players. Good show, man. And then uh, I noticed, uh, what's it called, 2011, you get a new head coach with Hugh Jackson. Yeah. And I was talking to you about it. You've now been with the Raiders seven years now, and this is now the fifth head coach. How is it – is it frustrating knowing that you have a coach and then next you don't know if he's coming back and then you have another person with another scheme and then another – how was it for you having now your fifth head coach going into year seven? I think that uh, my rookie year having North Turner, then second year having Art Shell, then third year having Lane Kiffin, and then uh, and then Tom Cable 
all within my first four years, you pretty much just kind of got numb to it. Uh, where like, okay, it's a revolving door. It is what it is. And one of the things I learned from Namdi and even Charles Woodson and even a Randy Moss was whatever's going on up there in the front office, whatever, you can't control that. But having a new head coach, this, that, and the other, that has nothing to do with you covering this receiver attack on the running back. It has nothing to do with anything. So um, for a lot of players, you just know that that's what's going on within the organization right now. And you don't let that affect your play, or, or I'm sorry, you don't let you don't try to let that uh, affect your play. You try to block it out and just grow numb to the madness. Uh, but you know, but pretty much, you know, you're kind of used to it uh, by year three or four. That's just kind of like how it was. You know, we yeah. end the season, and then we already know we're gonna find out about our new head coach somehow, somewhere on ESPN with the uh, the bottom we'll ticket. <laughs> somewhere around late January, early February, we'll find out when the rest of the world finds out. So you just uh, you, you just understand it and just, you know, just go with the flow. Good show, man. And now in 2011, man, you had a career high in interceptions. You had four, yeah. 15 pass deflections, man. So you're, you're playing really good at this point. Were there any personal goals that now you knew you were to start in 2011? Did you have any personal goals in your head? Like, okay, I want to be this type of player, get this many interceptions, or, or or what was what was the thought process going through your head at that time? I'd probably say uh, my only goal was, number one, I wanted to win the division, wanted to go to the playoffs. Uh, and then also, I wanted to go to the Pro Bowl. Uh, I think I made Pro Bowl alternate that season. Uh, but I finished pretty high, like I think in uh, completions allowed, INTs, but I definitely, uh, I definitely wanted us to go to the playoffs. That was my main focus of all. And then also, we all knew as a secondary, yeah, the Golden Goose, Nandi Asamoah is gone. We all knew that. So we wanted to, as a collectively, we wanted to make sure that we could go ahead and play well throughout the season and go to the playoffs because we knew that was something that the Raiders hadn't done in such a long time. I think it was 2002, the last time before the 2016 season. Uh, so that was probably, you know, those things as far as maybe the goals that uh, that you're speaking of. But, you know, like I said, once Al passed, that's when a lot of things changed. And that's when it became a situation where now we're not only fighting the other teams that we're playing against, now we're fighting a whole lot of uh, turmoil and uncertainty and just a lot of mutiny going on within the organization. Gotcha, man, gotcha. And then uh, what was the uh, question I was going to ask just now? Oh, yeah, speaking of Al Davis, man, uh, do you remember the day that uh, where you were at when you guys got the call that Al had uh, faithfully passed that morning? Man, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, it was, I think, October 11th, I want to say, I, something like that, October 6th, somewhere around the first part of October, and we had just landed in Houston to play the Texans, and it was a Friday night, and <clears throat> I remember how, I think it was, <clears throat> he passed that Friday night, and I think I saw the ESPN ticker maybe Saturday morning, eight o'clock, something like that. Then we had a team meeting around nine. That's when Hugh Jackson told us. But the, I guess you could say the sign was kind of there because Al didn't make the trip to Houston. And he always was on the plane to all the away games. Always, always was. So I guess, you know, that was a sign in itself, the fact that he didn't make the trip because, you know, apparently he was really, really sick. Uh, but yes, I still remember... Uh, Hugh Jackson telling us that 
that morning, Saturday morning in Houston, I believe was at the Greenway uh, Intercontinental Hotel uh, that Saturday morning, October 11th, something like that. Uh, yeah, I still remember that to this day, yes. And how difficult was it that you guys just heard that Al had just passed away and now here it is the next day, y'all still got a football game. You guys still got to go out there and perform. Yeah, it, it was kind of difficult, you know, for a lot of people that uh that Al actually personally drafted or, you know, people like myself, because so many people said that Al Davis loved me a whole, whole lot, even though uh, a lot of people thought me and him were really, really close. I can count on one hand how many times me and Al Davis actually had a conversation. And three of those times were, hello, Mr. Davis, how you doing? Yes, I'm doing fine, Mr. Rout. Uh, have a nice day. Like okay. that that quick in passing through the facility. Um yeah, it, it, it was it was difficult. It was. Um, I still remember going out in the game. Uh, but, you know, once the game starts, it's now just football. Yeah. And so, you know, you're not quite thinking about it as much. Uh, we're playing the Houston Texans. They're having a good season. They won the division that year in the AST South. And I still remember the final game of the uh, final, final play of the game. Uh, we wind up getting a, I think, a pass breakup. Matt Schaub rolls to his left. And we actually had 10 guys on the field yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah. And we're still able to find a way to get off. But, you know, I think in a lot of ways, we actually had 11 on the field at the time. Uh, but, yeah, I still remember that. And, you know, I think that that was great for us to be able to win that game for him. That's what's up, man. Did you know at the time that there were 10 or you didn't know until after the play was over that there was only 10 men out there? No, I, I didn't know until I think it was maybe on the plane ride home where uh, somebody told me, it's like, dude, we only had 10 guys on the field. And I'm just like, man, like, I'm so lucky. I'm so glad that we were lucky to actually win yeah. the game because, man, like, losing the game, final play is already bad enough. You lose a game, final play, having only 10 guys on the field, man, like, things like that are very difficult to come back from mentally yes, as, a, as, a, as a team and as a unit. For sure, man. And then, uh, like I say, the goal was playoffs. Week 17, you guys have a chance against the Sandy, uh, yeah, the San Diego Chargers yeah. in Oakland. I know everybody was hyped knowing that this could be it. How was it? Uh, I hate to put it that way. How was it that at the end it, it just didn't, didn't come down to what it was? I mean, to be honest with you, man, when we left, when, when, when Al passed, so much of the organization changed because that's when a lot of people start trying to flex their muscle. So especially after... We, after Al passed, we started running a whole lot more defensive coverages, uh, defensive uh, uh, philosophies, schemes were changing. That, mind you, we didn't have an OTA. We had a little bit of a training camp, obviously, because the lockout ended or whatever. But we were a man coverage team all throughout my years to Oakland, through, uh, throughout my years in Oakland. Then all of a sudden, we become a zone team where now we're running all these zone coverages and a lot of guys weren't really comfortable with the zone coverages because we hadn't worked on it. Didn't even have no TAs to go ahead and work on that. So that's why you saw we were seven and four going into December. We yeah. lose to Detroit. We lose to Green Bay. We lose to the Chargers. And we lose to, I think, uh, God, we went one and four in December. I forget, We beat the Chiefs. Yeah. Where we lost yeah. to, and I think that, yeah, the Miami Dolphins. We went one and four, and so much of that was we didn't trust the scheme. We didn't trust each other because we went from man coverage, Raider three, uh, jet coverage, things like that now to 
uh, trap coverage, running cover two, we're running some cover three, and things that we hadn't worked on, things that we weren't comfortable with. So by the time we got to San Diego, and I can say this now, we did not have much confidence that we can actually go out there and stop a Philip Rivers, Malcolm Floyd, Vincent Jackson, yep. uh, Antonio Gates-led offense. We knew that, okay, we want to win the game. We do. But as far as having the confidence that, okay, we're all on the same page, we know what we're doing, we trust one another, we trust the play calling, we trust the scheme, things like that, it was not a whole, whole lot of confidence coming from uh, from a lot of the guys on the deep side of the ball, uh, to say the least. And I still remember uh, to Tim Tebow. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Denver lost the last game of the season to the Chiefs. And, and I remember fourth quarter, the game is still within reach against the San Diego Chargers. And our fans were chanting, Denver lost, Denver lost, yeah. Denver lost. Basically telling us, like, hey, guys, if you can get your head out your ass and win the game, y'all can win the division and go to the playoffs. But uh, I think that uh, I think mentally as a team, I think by that point we were we, we were shot mentally as a team as far as like the confidence within the coaching staff and in the scheme that we're playing. For sure, man. Uh, I think we got like four minutes left, so I'm 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 I'm, I'm just gonna speed through these last ones, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, no, no, go yeah. go, hey, go 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 ahead, man. You you can go ahead and finish out your uh, your list of questions. By all means, you, if we go over. If we go over, then you know what we go over. I I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you. Thank you, yeah. man. I it, thank you, thank you again, man. Uh, so at the end of the season, February comes. Did you know at all that they were going to let you go or were there signs that you thought that you were about, that they were going to go in a different direction or anything like that? I actually had a little bit of an inkling. Uh, one of my homeboys, uh, he actually asked me a question one day and when Dennis Allen got the head coaching job and I don't think I had ever, I don't think I had heard from Dennis the entire time from him getting a head coaching job until the, until them releasing me, uh, I knew that was kind of odd, and so uh, so I wasn't completely shocked. But it was really interesting because when Reggie McKenzie first got there, when he when he first signed on as a GM, Reggie McKenzie wanted to try to send a message, you know, throughout the organization right. to show that hey, this is a new regime and we're gonna do things differently, whatever. So it's weird because. Of my contract, I still had another ten million guaranteed on my contract. So as he's giving me the phone call that hey, we're going to release you, they're writing me a check as they're as they're uh, as they're making the phone call. So as I'm walking out of the door, you Damn. know, figuratively, they're putting a, an eight figure check in my back pocket as I'm walking out of the door. And I think for Reggie McKenzie he did not realize that they still had, that I still had guaranteed money left on my contract because yeah. like I said, he's doing it more for a reason of, okay, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. I got to find one of the bigger players and I got to cut them to show everybody I mean business and things like that. So, uh, so, uh, so I wasn't completely shocked uh, at all. I thought it was kind of, I thought it was idiotic because as soon as he cuts me, they're then in the market looking for somebody to replace me. 
and it's now 2020. He left about two years ago, and they still haven't all the way fully replaced myself or even Namdi Asimov or even Michael Huff and Tyvon Branch, whatever. Although, like I said, I love the way they're playing right now. Yeah. Uh, shout out to them being five and three uh, Raider Nation. But, you know, nonetheless, it was something that uh, I didn't like. I'm not going to sit up here and, 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 and BS you. I didn't like it. I wanted yeah. to finish my career in Oakland. But at the same time, I understood with him now becoming the new GM he wants yeah. to try to send a message. I thought that was the dumb message to send because it simply cost you financially. And that same season, I think the Raiders went four and 12, something like that. So what did you really gain from it? But uh, but nonetheless, like I said, you know, uh, that's life. Life happens and, you know, you learn from it, you move on. For sure, man. And then uh, I, I meant to ask this in the beginning. My bad. Sorry if I'm all over the place, man. But, yeah, yeah seven years in Oakland. I've always wanted to ask a Raider player this, man. So, excluding yourself, because I know you were, I know you would, you would pick yourself. You knew that the Raiders had speed, Tyvon Branch, uh, DeMar uh, DeMarcus Van Dyke, yeah. Fabian DVD. Washington, all the speedsters, Darius Hayward, Bay, Jacoby Ford, all that. Was there ever, if you could pick one player, one player that you saw either on training camp or on the field that you're like, wow, I've never seen that type of speed before. What one player would that be, excluding yourself? I would probably have to go with, in my years in Oakland, I would probably have to go with, oh, I would have to go, well, I've never seen that type of, I would have to go with two guys. Okay. Uh, both both of them played receiver, and I would have to go with Jacoby Ford, who really, really could run. I think he ran like 6'5 in the 60 at Clemson, ran 10 flat, and you could definitely see it on the field once he finally gets going. And then uh, and then I'd say above him would be Randy Moss. Um, and a lot of people would say Randy Moss ran a 4-2 at Florida State, uh, this, that, and the other. Randy Moss ran as fast as he wanted to. Period. Um, and that right there was probably something that you don't see that often. He didn't run a 4-1. He didn't run a 4-2. He ran as fast as he wanted. And you rarely ever saw somebody able to stay with him stride for stride because he had a get up like no other. And that's why, obviously, you know, Hall of Famer, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think uh, yeah. everybody knows who that is. But, yeah, I'd probably say Jacoby Ford and then above him, Randy Moss. Good show, man. And if I know, I know this will sound like a dumb question, but if there was you in your prime, everybody else in their prime with their speed and everybody, all the speedsters, including Randy Moss, let's just say there was a race, whether it was a foot race, track, or whatever, do you feel confident a prime Stanford route could beat everybody there? I would probably ask you what race as far as what's the distance? Uh, I'll say 40 yards. Like, let's just go like 40 yards. In 40 yards, I'd probably say uh, in 40 yards, I think that I could have, well, statistically, Jacoby ran a 428. I ran 427. So, so statistically, yeah, I could beat him. Uh, I thought Jacoby was really, really fast at his days in Clemson in the 60, really, really fast. And Moss, statistically on paper, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I, man, um, 
I think it would just really depend on if I had a good day or not as far as getting out of the blocks or getting out of the start. Uh, that would have probably been the tell-all for me was how was my start? If my start is where it needs to be, yes. But if it's not where oftentimes it wasn't because my best event in track and field was the 200. But if, if my start was not good, no, I wasn't going to come back and catch them or anything like that. I got you, man. I appreciate you asking that question, man. And uh, now I want to – we're almost done, bro. I got like four subjects and then that'll be it. Because I know you're oh, a busy good. man and stuff, and I, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity again. Yeah, man, do your thing. Do your thing. I appreciate it. Uh, now you're a free agent for the first time ever. And I know there was a lot of teams that actually reached out to you. It wasn't like it was a couple. It was, like, I think, the Colts, mm -hmm. Chiefs. Oh, man, I'm trying to remember right now. Was it the Broncos? Yeah. So what, what came down to the decision for you to go to, to Kansas City? Oh, I'd say at the time, I thought that uh, the way Kansas City was structured, I thought the coaching staff, with them having championship Super Bowl pedigree, I thought that that would have been a good fit for me going there just based off of what I thought that I was getting myself into. Uh, and then also, I think that uh, being playing alongside Brandon Flowers, somebody I could also go ahead and learn from, I could grow with as well with him. Uh, Eric Berry, him being there, and then Derek Johnson. That's another guy that we came up together, 05 draft class. We were roommates at the Combine, had the same agent. So I felt some, so I felt a level of familiarity there. So I felt like Kansas City was the best fit. Michelle, man. And uh, while you were there, you got two interceptions. Mm -hmm. One of those interceptions, I remember I was cussing at the TV like crazy at you, man. Not none person, it was just the first <laughs> I game. Get it? Yeah, yeah, KC, man, the first play of the game. First play. You're, yeah, you're covering Darius Hayward Bay. They throw it to your side. Were you – but before the interception happened, did you even think they were going to test you like that? Oh, and how shocking. Come on. Come on, man. <laughs> Former team? Like, come on now. And, uh, and I remember the game before against Tampa Bay – uh, I was going against, uh, I forget his name. He was a young guy out of Syracuse, receiver for them back then for Tampa Bay. And I remember it was a nine route. And I actually went up to go pick the ball. And he actually came over my back to uh, to go ahead and take it from me. And he wound up scoring. So I didn't play well in that Tampa Bay game right before the game against the Raiders. And then there was another play in the Tampa Bay game. Tyquan Underwood tries me on a skinny post. I actually jump up tip the ball in the air to break up the pass. Somehow, someway, the ball goes straight up. It doesn't go down to the ground, doesn't go away. It goes straight up. And, and so I'm jumping up to tip it, but I fall down. Tyquan Underwood stays on his feet. Ball yeah. literally flutters right into his hands. He winds up going maybe about 20, 30 yards, big play for them. We wind up losing that game. So, uh, But just off of the simple fact that it is my former team, it's Dennis Allen. It is Reggie McKenzie. He cut me. He wants to show, hey, this is why we cut route. And yes. so things like that. I already knew that, like, I am out of my mind if I think this team is not going to try me. Now, gotcha. as far as the first play of the game, that's where something that I learned from Namdi was just the film study. Because the first play of the game, it was 21 personnel. It was a pro set. And – uh, it was uh, first and 10 on the 20-yard line. And they had shown that same pass concept, which was just all goes, against the Atlanta Falcons a few weeks before when they were backed up. 
It was the same formation, the same look. And so usually I play press man in our man coverage. But this time on this play, I saw the formation. I'm like, this is the same thing they did against Atlanta, except they were backed up. So I'm thinking to myself, nine route, nine route. And then I see DHB. We all know DHB can run. I'm yeah. thinking nine route. Okay, so I'm like, okay. I, I want to put myself in position to really have the best opportunity to break this play up because I know DHB can run. Right. So I get up to the line of scrimmage. As soon as Carson Palmer goes and drops back, I bail. I don't even play press man. I bail from the outside shoulder. That way I could see through DHB to, uh, to Carson. And as soon as he threw it, I'm like, okay, I see what type of game this is. So I want to make sure that I struck blood first, was the first to strike blood simply because, okay, I can kind of see where this is going. So, uh, so yeah, so the film study is what led to me, led me being able to go ahead and play bail technique instead of regular press man coverage to get that INT. Yeah, man. I like I said, I, I remember that play vividly. I remember I was, I think I was in a, my of my senior year in high school. I was glued to the TV. I was like, all right, let's go. That pick through, I cussed you out so many times, bro. I was like, God damn, like fuck this dude. Like, <laughs> but it, it's all good, man. So yeah, yeah that's all, that memory all I have. All love, man. All love. Yeah, trust me. I, I remember that vividly, man. Yeah, yes, sir, man. And then what I wanted to ask you, man, is later down the road. Were there things just not working out with you in Kansas City? Because I think they, they cut you in November, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man. Uh, man, uh, to, say the, to, the, to say the least, man, when I first got to KC, I thought that would be a great situation for me because of the coaching staff with their championship pedigree. But it was very quick. It was very quick when I got there. I realized, yeah, I don't really, really gel with this. And – because of the technique that they were trying to get me to play at in my man coverage, I knew, man, I can't do this. And so for several weeks, it really, really worked on me because it's not conducive to how you play football as far as being successful in man coverage for a corner. So I called up Willie Brown. I called up, let me see, uh, I called up uh, my, my DB coach at the time in Kansas City, Emmett Thomas, I asked him. Uh, I asked several people that I knew. I was like, man, can you play successful opening the gate at the line of scrimmage in man coverage when it's not two-man with safeties uh, right over the top? They're like, no, Stan, like, you're just asking them to throw nine routes on you all day long. And so, uh, and so that, was a, that was a technique that they were trying to get me to play, and I just never was able to buy into it all the way. And so I struggled mentally from trying to buy into what they were trying to teach. So I knew early on, this probably won't last long. I knew that. I mean, I just didn't say that to anybody out loud or whatever, but yeah, but, uh, and then, so obviously they cut me, I then go to Houston, but we see throughout the rest of that season, nothing changed, nothing picked up. And then what do you know, that same coaching staff is now coaching for the Houston Texans and they're struggling in the back end because of, I'm assuming, how they're trying to teach them to play right. the cornerback position. So uh, I, I realized then that because somebody has a lot of hardware and because somebody has accolades and they got a lot of, uh, they, got, they got a lot of slots on their resume from winning championships, this and the other, New England Patriots, what have you, things like that, that does not mean that they're as knowledgeable and that does not mean that they're as great as the, great at their job is their resume would suggest. So, uh, so yeah, that was definitely, 
um, something that I should have thought through more looking back on it. Yeah. But nonetheless, like, you know, that's how life goes. Uh, you make choices. They wind up not working out. And, you know, you just throw your hands up and you just use that as, okay, you know what? I got to be smarter next time. Gotcha, man. You, you went to the Chiefs. Like I said, they cut you midway. Yeah. And then you played a little bit for the Houston Texans, man. Yeah. After that year, were you now still trying to figure out, okay, is there a way I can play football? Or were you trying to uh, venture off into other other areas? I think for the most, I think for the most part, I was mentally, I was mentally shot at that time. Uh, once the uh, the 2012 season ended, 2013 came along. That's when the NFL started going younger. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I was at a point where do I want to go somewhere and just be the fourth or fifth corner on special teams, whatever? I really wasn't at a point where I wanted to to do anything like that. So mentally. From that standpoint, I was already mentally shot because uh, my heart was probably still in Oakland. Things didn't work out in Kansas City. The Houston Texans already were stacked uh, at the cornerback position, things like that. So mentally, I was at a I was at a point where you know what, I'm not sure if I love this enough to still go through this gauntlet, go through uh go through the fire like that. So it was easy for me to go ahead and just mentally get to the point where okay, you know what. I can go ahead and now just move on to something else. Gotcha, gotcha. And also, I know that you do a, a you're an, a, how would I call it? You're, a, would I say uh, an analyst? Yeah. Would I call it that? How did yeah. you get into that field, man? Because I see you on Colin, uh, the Colin Hurd show all the time. I know you're a regular over there. I've seen you on NFL Network. I've yeah. seen you go back. So how did that set up? And did you think afterwards I wanted to do this or is it something that just came up? Man, uh, when I stopped playing football, I honestly did not even have a fucking plan. I didn't. Uh, now, one of the things that was probably the biggest blessing is that um, I was fortunate enough and I was blessed enough uh, to have made a, a, a nice sum of money during my years playing. So right. when I was done, I didn't have to immediately uh, go into the job workforce. Uh, and I remember, so maybe about my first two years out, I'm just kind of relaxing, uh, doing a whole lot of nothing. Um, and I'm at the gym. I'm at the gym. People always run up to me. Hey, who do you think is going to win the game this week? You know, Steelers or Ravens? Or who like who's, who, who should I add to my fantasy team? You know, things like that. Right. And so then one of my friends, uh, he's like, Stan, like, have you ever – thought about like doing radio, you know, things like that. And like, you're passionate about the game, you know it well, and you speak it well. So then that's pretty much what kind of led to that. And then all of a sudden I started doing a little bit of radio out here in Houston, a th few local access shows. And then it just started just basically building from there. But, uh, but definitely not something that I always thought of like, man, when I'm done playing, I want to be an analyst. I want to be in broadcasting. Right. Definitely something that, uh, that, that, that I did not foresee uh, while I was playing. Well, yeah, man, uh, you're doing a very good job, man. Like I said, I, I like what you were doing. And also, when did it come uh, that you wanted to interview players? Because I see it on your IG all the time. One of my yeah. personal favorites is the Dwayne Bow one. I think that's <laughs> the favorite one with me. But uh, how, when did you start to get into that type of field? Man, I'd probably say, I want to say maybe right around the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic started. And then 
Obviously, everything is done through Zoom. I can no longer go out to Fox Sports out there in LA, things like that. And then uh, my girlfriend, she basically just mentioned, like, why don't you start up your own podcast? And then, you know, before I knew it, uh, I just started kind of slowly getting into it and then, you know, hitting up certain players that I knew. And then it started going from former players that I played with or against to now uh, current players, things like that. It just kind of, she just gave me the uh, the idea and then I just went ahead and started just going with it. But, so, uh, man, but like yeah. I said, you got you you got a, quite a catalog, man. You got a, a <laughs> list it. of players, man. So, like I said, congratulations on that. I'm always tuned in. I'm I'm always gonna watch. <laughs> I also cool, like cool. that you talk about things outside of football, what you were talking yeah. about in the beginning. So, mm-hmm. like I said, it's good to see somebody bring that type of awareness up. You know, appreciate especially it, with somebody with your platform. Yeah, uh, Ambry Thomas, uh, a former uh, Michigan Wolverine corner opted out of this season, is entering the 2021 NFL draft, going to be an early pick. Yeah, I just had him uh, a couple of days ago, and I dropped that uh, on Instagram uh, this morning as far as, like, uh, our, uh, our, our our interview together. So, man, you're doing, you're doing a lot of good work, man. You got a fan over here just from that outside hey, of football. Man, same to you, man. I love everything you're doing, man. Happy to be on. Much appreciated. Uh, like I said, anytime you need me, man, just let me know. Uh, I'm all here for you. For sure, man. And then I think two, yeah, two questions and that's it, my man. Like I said, I, I know that it, it could be daunting. Uh, what is it going to be? Oh, yeah. One of the biggest questions I always want to ask people football, you've played football for a long time. Have you ever had any like concussions like way before that, you know, there's a concussion protocol now, but before 2011, I think, did you ever have a serious, like serious type concussion before because, like I said, you've played in the league where I don't want to say it wasn't the main focus on. Oh, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know it. what? I, yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. But how? What did you get anything serious during your time playing? No, no, uh, no. I never did. Only just had a, a torn meniscus my third year. That was it. Uh, but as far as like concussions, no. I always try to keep my head out of things. So you know, for corners, a lot of us. You know, the running backs coming to your side or it's a tight end. We're always going low anyways, trying to keep our bodies, keep our head, things like that out of harm's way while still being able to make the tackle if you can. So, no, I never had anything of the sort, even close to a concussion or anything like that. All right, for sure, man. I'm glad to hear it, man. Glad everything's good up there. You know, a lot of people, you know, aren't as fortunate. So I'm I'm glad you're doing well with that, man. Appreciate and then this will this will be my last question, and I'll let you go, man. Last game of the year in Oakland, last yeah, it was last year, 2019, at the Coliseum. I did see you out there on TV, man. So one, mm-hmm. did they invite you out, or did you just, or were you just like, hey, I want to come out there for the last uh, last go around? Yeah, they pretty much invited all the former players for that final game. Uh, but even if I, even if they didn't invite us, you know, officially, I still would have gone because, you know, for me and one of my biggest, I guess you could say regrets is, is that when I left Oakland, obviously that, you know, my heart was still in Oakland. I still love the Oakland Raiders now the Las Vegas Raiders, but whenever everything went sour between myself and Reggie McKenzie and Dennis Allen for the way things went down and how I thought it was more personal than football related, when I stopped playing, I wasn't able to be the uh, uh, the the unsolicited or should I say unfiltered fan that I really wanted to be 
for the Oakland Raiders simply because of my animosity towards the Reggie McKenzie and a Dennis Allen for the way things went down. But after obviously Dennis Allen gets fired, then Reggie McKenzie leaves once John Gruden now gets in the fold. That's when now I'm able to fully embrace everything about the Raiders uh, and not have any animosity with the head coach or the GM or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, definitely. Um, it was something I was going to go to regardless. And I'm so glad that I did because it was a huge nostalgic feeling, huge Not nostalgic feeling of uh, being back out there, being back out there in the Oakland, Ra- in the Oakland area, uh, you know, being over there off of Hagenberger, seeing 880, uh, you know, being at the Oakland Coliseum, things like that. And it was a real, it was a real sad feeling because, you know, now you look at the Bay area, you still got the 49ers in Santa yeah. Clara, but that 510 area code no longer has its baby anymore. Right. Um, you know, so like that's something that really kind of touched me and just seeing, okay, man, I used to play on this field, get interceptions on this field, play with these guys on this field. There will never be another game on this field for an Oakland Raider. And so I, I'm not sure if they still play high school games on that field. I know the Oakland A's played this past season on that field. I think they're going to be having a new stadium here soon or whatever. But uh, but it definitely was something I was not going to miss that final game simply because of everything that the Oakland Raiders have done for me personally right, and just right. everything that they bring to that community and just that uh, that area of the state. And, you know, with it still being, in my opinion, one of the most storied franchises ever in the history of the NFL. And then, you know, also – I don't know this for a fact. This is, you know, my own opinion, me speculating. I don't think Al D would have ever wanted to leave California. Maybe go back to LA, maybe. Yeah. But like, you know, I just I don't think Al would have ever really truly yeah, dreamt of yeah. of yeah, of of the Oakland Raiders being a non-California team. So, you know, that so I had a lot of those thoughts running through my mind. But nonetheless, like I said, um, I've always learned in life that change is inevitable. That's the only thing that's constant in this world is change. Nothing will ever stay the same. So uh, I'm so happy to see that now the Raiders have their own market in the Las Vegas area. I don't think you'll ever see a Reno Chargers or a Reno Packers or whatever. So uh, so they, they have the state all to themselves. Uh, we all know that the uh, the Las Vegas Raiders have a huge fan base, so the West Coast is still able to get to them and go to Allegiant Stadium when, obviously, the pandemic subsides and uh, and they now allow fans. So I, I love that. Love what they're doing right now, five and three. Love the direction that John Gruden has them going. Josh Jacobs is a, a, is a freaking amazing. Derek Carr now finally getting the respect he deserves, things like that. But, uh, but yeah, it, like I said, it was definitely a uh, – a bittersweet moment seeing that final game, but also knowing so many things that could be coming into play in the future. And also, you know, as a player, I know they love it because not only is it Sin City, things like that, (laughs) but yeah, it's no, it's no state income tax in the state of Nevada. And I can tell you, I can tell you from personal experience every Tuesday at the time was Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was the governor. Every Tuesday, Uncle Sam is digging deep into your pockets with that state income tax and things like that. So uh, so from a player standpoint, they love being the yeah. Las Vegas Raiders and not the Oakland Raiders. 
It's so, man. And did uh, you – were you able to stay the whole game? Yeah, yeah, stayed the whole game and then uh, and then left uh, left right after. It's yeah, so, but, man. Uh, but I think, definitely, uh, definitely love that. So. I think this will be the last thing uh, I'll ask. How surprised were you at the end of the game where, you know, we fell short, you know, to the Jacksonville Jaguars? It was a bittersweet moment because you want the win going out. And were you there for the boos that were that were shouted at the yeah. team after afterwards? It's mainly yeah. Derek Carr, yeah. <laughs> no, I was there. I, I was there for that. But like I said, that's that's how Raider fans are. We all know that. So I wasn't surprised as far as them blowing the lead. Uh, sad to say, I wasn't surprised because, like I said, they still had those growing pains that they need to go ahead and learn from. I I, I was there at, when they played the Houston Texans last year down at NRG Stadium. Had the lead. Blew it. Yeah. Uh, they are about to sack Deshaun Watson. Somehow, somewhere, he gets kicked in the eye, still is able to scramble for the touchdown. Uh, so, like I said, I wasn't surprised by it. Wasn't happy to see it, but I yeah. wasn't surprised by it or anything like that. But nonetheless, um, it appears that things are starting to uh, take a turn for the better. We yeah. see that they yeah. were able to pull out the victory against the Los Angeles Chargers. Uh, making a stand at the goal line, third down and fourth down. Great job for them. For Isaiah Johnson, making sure that he got the ball out of there. I forget the tight end's name for the Chargers. But uh, but like I said, I wasn't surprised by them blowing the lead against the Jacksonville Jaguars last year. Wasn't surprised by the boos because I know that's how Raider fans are. They're passionate. Whether yeah. it's good or bad, they're passionate. So, uh, so, no, definitely wasn't surprised. But nonetheless, like I said, um, I wouldn't have traded for the world actually being at that game, actually soaking up the last few emotions, the last few moments that I could, taking as many pictures, videos, things like that that I could. Um, I wouldn't have traded that for the world, whether they would have won by 40 or lost by 40. Good show, man. And, yeah, man, I'll end it right there. I 110% appreciate this, man. Been okay, trying to do man. it for a while. Yeah. Uh, hopefully when the pandemic is over and everything's – you know, cool with the illness. I'm down to take it out there, do an in-person <laughs> interview again, man. All good. Yes, All sir, good, man. man. Just I appreciate just it again. Just remember, Houston yeah. is a long way away from Dallas. Just remember that. <laughs> I'll, I'll make. I'll, I'll, I'll remember that next time I'm out there, man. But, yeah, I appreciate you, man. Uh, hope all is well with your podcast, with the interviews, everything. Keep talking the stuff you are. Like I said, you got a fan outside of football rather than just your football talent, what you're doing. <laughs> With these interviews and, likewise, and the players. Likewise, bro. I appreciate it, man. All right, then, Stan, man. I'm going to hit you up. It probably uh probably won't be ready till like, Monday or something like that. But I'll let you know cool. when I upload it and everything. All good, man. All good. I'll go ahead and I'll share it on mine. All right. Appreciate you, boss. Thank you, man. Man, be safe, man. Be good. All right. You too, boss. Thank you. All right.